0: It is October 9, 1997, and Lil Smurf is in the parking lot of a Portland strip club, dead in a pool of his own blood. This is some Kick-Ass Oregon History. To another installment of Kick-Ass Oregon History, a survey created by the geeked-out history folks at orhistory.com. We profile only the most badass, captivating Oregon stories. It's all Oregon sex, drugs, rock and roll, and earth-shattering, devastating destruction. Basically, the good stuff. Kick-Ass Oregon History is a presentation of ORhistory.com and is supported by listeners like you. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit ORhistory.com and click donate. She
1: was a furry one, legs ran all the way up to heaven and past I belong. Tell me something, girl, what in it you have in store? She said, come with me now, I'm the devil's.
0: In today's podcast, we're bringing the Oregon sex, or at least simulated Oregon sex, or is it just free expression that resembles Oregon sex? In any case, in today's episode, we're going to be looking at the history of strip clubs in the, um, beaver state, liquor, cheap steaks, and professional naked people. These are a few of our favorite things here at ORHistory.com. Portland. Mud. Stumps. A confluence of two rivers. Close proximity to the coast, the mountains, and the forest. Abundant natural resources requiring an abundance of labor to exploit them. Rough and rugged loggers, fishermen, miners, and other workers with money to spend on a rainy Oregon night tend not to go to the library for their entertainments. All sorts of options were available to assist those lonely men with the task of unloading all of that cash. And some of these enablers were women entertainers. When August Erikson established his Bar O'Portland Yore in 1880, he kept this in mind. Not only did Erikson's saloon feature a 684-foot bar, a $5,000 pipe organ, and a free Buffett lunch, It also was home to a full-size concert stage and gorgeous showgirls graced that performance platform. Across Burnside was the Fred Fritz Place, a club with a capacity of over 900 patrons that advertised 40 beautiful girl performers, vaudeville, burlesque, comedy, good times assured. E-Town has a strong, deep tradition of scantily clad ladies gracing the stage to pry a few dollars from a working man's wallet. Dance
1: all day's
0: all day's Burlesque is a term that is often applied to the performances presented by these old-timey ladies. Traditionally Burlesque was a music and comedy production, often off-color, and supplemented by large amounts of liquor. Striptease crept into the scene with most of the ladies wearing pasties and g-strings as they strutted to popular contemporary music. Eventually, the format was supplanted and the comedians and acts dissipated. Men came en masse to see the beautiful, nearly-naked women. Many years later, A 1971 commentator described the burlesque scene nostalgically when he wrote that gone were the funny comedians and the artful bumping, grinding, and teasing of the dancers. Dead as well is the humor from the theater days cartoons of errant playboys, silk hats tipped rakishly over martini glasses, joyfully accompanying a paddy wagon load of chorus girls on their way to the police station. Burlesque and Portland was moving towards the realm of smut and dirty dancing. Now, huh. As early as 1953, some cracks were beginning to appear in the Portland burlesque scene, mainly centered at the time on the Star and Capitol theaters. City Commissioner Stanley Earle blasted that the shows were absolutely getting out of bounds. It seems that a stripper of exceptionally buxom proportions, one Tempest Storm, had been given quite a boost by Commissioner Earle's tirade and caused Police Chief James Purcell Jr. to immediately leave his desk and check on the proceedings at the Capitol Theater to, um, make certain everything was morally up to snuff, we're sure. Local city regulations at the time dictated that girls had to wear pasties, preferably for lace panels, and g-strings, Below the Equator, as the Oregonian article noted, all in all, things were still relatively tame through the 50s, and the naughty bits remained at least slightly obscure. topless trade in Portland to have originated with the establishment of Mary's Club by Roy Keller in 1964. One reporter has written that these exotic dancers took the stage in elaborate gowns and slowly stripped, enticingly peeling one layer per song until they got down to pasties and bikini bottoms or g-strings that would be considered modest by today's standards.
2: The moral codes of the city, and thus the regulating of naked women, seem to have been a common theme of court challenges in the latter half of the last century in Oregon. Constant back and forth followed, and perusal of old newspaper articles seems to sway back and forth between the extremes. Sometimes there are naked women dancing in clubs. Other times they are nearly naked, but the dancing and the music and the money and the booze flowed on. Casey Champagne, Linda Lee Scott, and Bambi Darling could all be found on stages throughout the city of Portland.
0: Memorial Coliseum was a swinging place Saturday night in Convention Hall, a trio of bare-topped go-go dancers were revolving their charms to recorded music. In the main hall, frantic teenagers were crying violently about the music of The Doors and In Group. And in another area, 300 members of the Society for the Preservation and Encouragement of Shop Quartet Singing in America were singing in close harmony. The dancers were the last act to appear as entertainment for the Portland Shipping Club's annual banquet. We at Kick-Ass Oregon History feel truly sorry for anyone who ate the brown acid at the Doors show and the chaotic scene that surely resulted when they stumbled into one of the other two performances that night. In the summer of 1967, Mayor Terry Shrunk and the Portland City Council passed an ordinance that said women were not allowed to appear so costumed or dressed that one or both breasts are wholly or substantially exposed to public view. Oh no, I know a dirty word. <laughs> Out came the pasties, and boobies across the city became wholly unrecognizable. <laughs> but twas ever so that Portland girls are crafty. Covering up their treasured assets with glitter pasties, they showed the true entrepreneurial spirit that surrounds a stump town dancer. The ladies started a new type of show. Instead of a topless show, they gave a bottomless show. That's right, dear ass-kicker. The dancers would be on stage in the early 1970s with pasties on their nipples and nothing below the belt ordinances in cities, counties, and municipalities flew across the state. Something had to be done to decide once and for all the state of bear boobies in the Beaver State. The debate started in the far-flung town of Nyssa, right next to the Idaho border. Having adopted the nom de guerre of Thunder Egg Capital of the World, let's just be polite and say that Nyssa is a bit of a conservative community the town of a little over 3,000 residents Nyssa had over 20 churches a grocery store that refused to sell Playboy magazine and was considering taking people off the shelf because of the racy covers yet Nyssa also was home to a strip club called Miss Sally's in February of 2000 a police officer responded to a complaint at Miss Sally's and walked in to see a naked dancer shaking her hair in a customer's face. The officer arrested the owners of the club for violating the Nissa City Code. No way, said owners Sally Dufloff and Dwayne Smith. When slapped with the charge, they didn't take the law into their own hands. They took them to court.
2: Another case was banging around the legal system that would have serious repercussions on strip clubs as well. In 1998, one Charles Canelli, who operated a Roseburg establishment called Angels, was arrested after one of his female employees, being paid $100 by an undercover policeman, performed a live sex show that involved a dildo, a few of the ladies' fingers, and the area below the equator region mentioned previously. Between the two cases, it was a whirlwind of naked women in live sex shows, and the judicial branch of our state government was waiting at the rail.
0: The case moved through the court system and eventually made it to the big daddy of them all, the Oregon Supreme Court. The Oregon State Constitution's free expression provision, found in Article 1, Section 8, is even more expansive than the First Amendment of our national constitution. The Oregon Constitution states that no law shall be passed restraining the free expression of opinion or restricting the right to speak, write, or print freely on any subject whatever. The Oregon Supreme Court decision of 2005 demonstrated that the founders of our state clearly meant for this free expression provision to include unpopular forms of expression. Portland attorney Ray Pulvers at the time commented that, I don't think it merely reaffirms the Oregon court's historic interpretation of free speech. I think it strengthens it. As Justice Michael Gillette wrote, the idea of broad free speech rights held particular appeal for the Americans participating in the Great Westward Movement, who often had moved west to avoid the constraints of settled society, and tended to place an especially high value on individual liberty. So, not only is enjoying a dollar dance at the dolphin an expression of the appreciation for free speech in Oregon, It is also an expression of that Western individuality and cheap stakes. Justice DePaul Munitz dissented. He wrote that the idea that the Victorian area drafters and ratifiers of the Oregon Constitution sought to bring public masturbation and sexual intercourse within the purview of constitutional free speech protection Is difficult to comprehend. While it is difficult for us to conceive of Narcissa Whitman hitting that long, rugged trail for the opportunity to manipulate herself in a tavern with a plastic phallus, it is a pretty hot image. So we're going to go with it for now. Besides a certain reputation of being an industry of ill repute and loose morals, the adult entertainment industry has an association with crime as our hook regarding Lil Smurf optimizes. Anthony Branch Jr., also known as Lil Smurf, a member of the Kirby Block Crips, lay dead in a parking lot. Some say a rival gang killed him after he went to California with $36,000 to buy two kilos of cocaine. The story goes that Lil Smurf bought the drugs and then kept them. Another tale says that the beef was caused over a stolen girl, a stolen gold necklace, and a stolen $200. Whatever the cause, the hustler lay bleeding to death in the parking lot of The Viewpoint, the bulletproof vest he usually wore, would have offered no protection from the bullet to his neck. Darren Bebe McCoy was eventually sentenced to 15 and a half years for the killing at the viewpoint.
2: This scene is something out of a Tarantino flick, to be sure, but it's also an example of another primary opposition of strip clubs, that criminal elements are drawn to these establishments and that crime spills out of their doors like so much stale beer. Drugs, prostitution, violence, and public urination have all been attributed by opponents to rise in frequency around these body beer bars. Not so,
0: said a 1988 study. During a particularly puritanical Portland moment, Oregon Liquor Control Commission investigator Shirley Hasberger poured through police reports in a 60-block stretch of Sandy Boulevard, at that time home to numerous strip clubs, including the famed Calico Cat. Hasperger found that out of 60 drug cases and 20 prostitution cases, only two were related to these establishments. Her conclusion was that there is no connection to nude dancing, liquor, and increased criminal activities. The Portland police also agreed with this assessment, and at the time said that the infamous Sandy Jug Tavern had fewer problems than any other establishment on that
2: sin-seeped street. Some of the famed strip clubs are long gone. The carriage room was torn down in 1988 to make way for the new Broadway Theater Building on Southwest Broadway in Salmon. This was also a Keller Club, and in an article with Phil Stanford before the place was to be leveled, he lamented at the degradation of the club from its heyday in the 1970s. It was a classic Vegas-style show with feather boas and gold lame dresses and all the associated accoutrement. The Calico Cat a longtime Sandy establishment left over a decade ago. In the late 90s, this club featured a lactating dancer that would squirt her milk into the face of patrons for $5 and sell a shot of mama's milk for a crisp 20 Those enterprising Portland dancers even stealing milk from the baby.
1: Oh, you're so oh,
2: Here at Kick-Ass Oregon History, we're all about you, dear ass kicker, experiencing our state's glorious history. Furthermore, as podcasters, we hold the Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution in quite high regard and feel that only by honoring this tenant can we truly be able to strengthen our commitment to free speech in the beaver state. So head on out and see some of these historic sites and revel in the expression of free speech occurring in these bastions of freedom of expression. The Acropolis has been a draw for years, and musician Marilyn Manson said that it's his favorite bar in the world, clothed or unclothed. Variously described by local reporter Steve Dunn as having the visual appeal of a Goodwill collection box, The Acropolis has also been attributed as having the atmosphere of an Old West brothel, Hollywood-style. The Pirate's Cove was for years called the Sandy Jug. With its architecturally distinctive gigantic jug, the establishment sticks out like a swollen teat and invites the passerby to experience some lost Oregon, as our friend John might say. Located at 74th and Sandy, it was built in 1928 as part of the Gusher service station. I shit you not. Then, the Orange Blossom Jug sold refreshments. It evolved into a restaurant in the 1930s, and by the 1950s, it was the Sandy Jug Beer Parlor. Today, it's liquor and naked women, freely expressing themselves. Well, free as in for a dollar bills kind of way.
0: kicker and be on the lookout for future podcasts by our crew we hope that you agree that today's episode featured some kick-ass Oregon history today's podcast was brought to you by orhistory.com it was written recorded edited and produced by Doug Cank Crispin and Andy Lindbergh citations are available on request check out our website at orhistory.com. There, you can subscribe to the podcast and have it delivered through RSS directly to your device. You can sign up for our exciting Oregon history events, pick up Oregon history merchandise, get a list of songs featured in each podcast, get extra insights into podcast topics, and read of our adventures as Oregon's rock and roll historians. can also support the podcast, go to orhistory.com and click donate. Follow us on Twitter at Oregon underscore history. You can also like us on the Facebook. The email address is OregonHistorian at gmail.com.
1: many clothes, so let's loosen up to the playful tease, like all lovers did through the centuries. Which
0: you And coming up so on October I 17th, 2012, Please join us on Kick-Ass Oregon History's Historic Portland Strip Club Bus Tour. Join Rebald resident historian Doug Kink Cank- Crispin on a giant bus with three stripper poles in it and some free malted ninkasi beverages as we head to historic Portland strip clubs and talk about freedom in Oregon. Tickets are still available. Just check the link at ORHistory.com. The Strip Club Bus Tour is co-sponsored by Eastside Distilling and Alexander Limousine & Party Bus. We hope you can make it on October 17th as we explore Portland's sinful stripping past. Just don't place any dollar bills in front of Mr. Kank Crispin. He's liable to express himself more freely than you'd bargained for. You stay historic, Oregon, and kick
1: ass. But we wish we had not so many clothes. <laughs> so let's loosen up to a playful tease, like all others did in the centuries.
2: liquor and naked women freely expressing themselves just like the Oregon constitution says they should by picking up dollar bills with their ass cheeks.